Well, good morning. It's so special to be with you here in Blackburn. Uh, I've already bumped into a few friends from Holy Trinity Brompton. I know Dan Wimpress. Dan, where have you gone? There he is. Where is he? There he is. Hi. Hello. So good to see you. But I'm also here with my family, which is fantastic. So thank you so much for inviting me to speak. Well, you're in the moment of, uh, in the middle of a sermon series at the moment, leading up to Easter. And I'm so thrilled you've got the cross right in the middle here. Because the cross is the ultimate expression of God's love for each one of us. I'm sure you're probably aware that the most famous and often quoted verses in the entire Bible are these. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The context of Jesus' words in these verses is he's explaining to a man called Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, just a few verses before, that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Why do you and I need saving or to be born again? Well, salvation cannot be earned by believing differently or giving money to good causes or living a life full of good acts. The concept of salvation or being rescued by God from the consequences of all our wrongdoing is central to the Christian faith. God created humanity to have a close relationship with him and created a perfect world for us to live in. But our sin, my sin, your sin, our wrong actions and wrong thinking brought sin and death into the world. God wants our relationship with him restored because he is pure and holy and cannot tolerate sin. And because humanity cannot rescue itself, God revealed his love by sending Jesus to pay the ultimate penalty for us, the death on the cross. In the passage that Tim read from 1 John 4, John lays out with such clarity the ways that we now can discover this love. Long before we knew our need to be reconciled to God, he revealed the immensity of his grace and mercy to us in sending Jesus to live amongst us, and through his life and teachings, to invite us to come and be reconciled to the Father. In my own life, I had absolutely no concept of my need to be reconciled to God or to be born again spiritually, let alone that I, like everyone else, was a sinner. But in 1980, my younger sister, her life just changed. She started going to church, which was odd. 
and she was full of a new joy, which made me question, what has happened to you? And I thought she'd actually found uh, someone that she'd fallen in love with. But when I questioned her and said, who's the man? She said, well, I've become a Christian, and I now have a day-to-day personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I was cross because I went to church at Christmas and at Easter, and I lived a reasonably upright life. I mean, I was a bit naughty at boarding school, but apart from that, not, not too many terrible things. So because I'd seen her change, I said, I want to come to this church you've been going to. So literally two days later, I accompanied her to Holy Trinity Brompton in London. And I was amazed because I had to go to church at boarding school. It was so boring. And at school, we used to just pass the teacher's gloves under the pews to the back. You know, we would, we would just play up. But I came to the church. It was full like this church is today. People were worshipping a God. And as they worshipped, I thought, you're worshipping a God I don't know. But I stayed awake for the sermon. It was really interesting. And um, at the end of the service, I thought, I want to find out more. So literally a week later, I became a Christian. I was led in a prayer, the sinner's prayer. I remember thinking even then, I don't know why I'm praying that um, I'm repenting of sins. But of course, once you are born again, you start to realize that your life actually needs uh, the presence and the forgiveness of God every single day. So I prayed the prayer. But then two years later, we had a visit from an American called John Wimber, and he came to our church. And when he spoke in our church about the spiritual gift of healing, because at the time I was nursing people with HIV and AIDS, I thought, I want to go and learn how you can receive this spiritual gift. So I was sitting on the edge of my chair, and um, that night I went forward because uh, there was a word that there was someone who'd fallen from a height onto stony ground. And... Marigold will remember that I had had a really bad horse riding accident and here in Australia, in fact, and I had fallen from a height onto stony ground. So I went forward for prayer to receive healing for my back, but I wanted the gift of healing as well. And I didn't know that God could do more than one thing at a time. <laughs> so um, the team who came to pray with me were very sweet. They said, look, why don't you, you close your eyes, focus on Jesus, and we'll pray. And as they prayed... A number of things happened. It was a May evening, but it wasn't very warm. But I felt this heat going through my body. And of course, at Pentecost, they actually saw tongues of fire on people. So we know heat is representative of the Holy Spirit. But I also, um, the main thing that God did was he opened a channel between my brain and my heart. And he literally poured his love into my heart. Now, up to that point, I could believe he died for, for Tim and for everybody else in this room. But I couldn't believe that Jesus died for me. But that was the turning point of my life. As Tim read out in my, in my sort of CV, I was nursing people with HIV and AIDS. I think people were more scared in those days than they were of COVID, of, of dying, because literally it was if you touched someone, you would die. So in my nursing department, we had to wear full green protective clothing. One day, I was waiting for a patient to come in to have one of these fiber optic tests, a bronchoscopy. That was how HIV was diagnosed. And I was talking to God, and it was hot, a hot day, and the patient was delayed, so I had quite a long time praying. And I said to God, no wonder they're sick with HIV and AIDS. Because I would sit in on the outpatient department when people were being interviewed, 
And it would be very normal for uh, a patient to go to a Turkish bath or a sauna bath and in one night have sex with six different people. And I had to wire up my jaw because I didn't know that people lived like that. So I was saying to God, no wonder this person is sick because they're so promiscuous. And I heard God speak to me. He said, you're judging. And I said, yes, but God, it is disgraceful how they live. <laughs> I was so arrogant and so proud. And again, God said, I love I loved this person. I died for them just as I died for you. Now, I knew as a young Christian that Jesus taught the greatest of commandments are, first of all, to love God with all your heart, but the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And I knew I wasn't doing very well with the second commandment. So I prayed a grumpy prayer. And God likes to listen to grumpy prayers. And this was my grumpy prayer. If I'm to love these people, you're going to have to change my heart, Lord. Well, the good news is the power of the love of Christ is there to transform anyone, even me and everyone. And that is what I have witnessed. From that moment on, I started to see, not only because God started to change my heart, but I started to see the love of Christ transforming other people. Now, in this first slide, um, I'd love to show you this little girl. In 2015, I was preaching here in Melbourne and in a place called Caulfield. And in the coffee after the service, this little girl came up to me. And I was just talking to someone else. She was quite small, but she just wrapped her little arms around my leg and began to speak, uh, to, speak to me. I thought, that's lovely. You know, I've never met you. I asked her her name, and then she ran off. And then she came back about 15 min minutes later. She did the same thing again. And I thought at that point, I think I need to meet her mum. So I said, is your mummy here? So she said, yes. So her mum came over. And um, I said, your child is very loving. And she said, let me tell you a story. And the story was that when the child was three, she said to her mum, mummy, what is God's purpose for my life? And her mum said, oh, darling, when you're older, we'll pray. Uh, and we'll ask God when you're a bit older. And then, a few hours later, God said to her mother, why do we have to wait until the child is older to find out? So she brought her child in, and they sat and they prayed. And the little girl looked up and she said, Mommy, God's told me my purpose in life is to love other people. And that picture was taken straight after I'd heard that story. And it reminds me so much that even a child can learn to love a stranger. Um, but I want to take you through some other photos. Now, as you know, I work in prison. So the next uh, photo is of a man called Michael Emmett. Now, in 1994, I was filled with the Holy Spirit in, in a very powerful way. Um, and at the time, I remember putting up my arms like this, saying, Jesus, I love you so much, I don't mind where you send me or where I go. And three months later, Nicky Gumbel, who, as you know, has, has developed the Alpha course, he rang me up one morning. He said, Em, I've had a, a, a phone call from an inmate in Exeter Prison. His girlfriend is on our Alpha course here in London. But he has invited me to come down to, take, uh, to introduce the Alpha course in Exeter Prison. So I said, oh, sounds great, Nicky. And then he said, but my diary's a little full. So I told the inmate that someone I know I can send. So I said, oh, okay. And then he said, well, you do prison ministry. Would you go? 
And I said like this, no way, Nikki. I, I've worked in a women's prison in London. I've never been into a men's prison. And Nikki said, just speak to the chaplain in the prison. He sounds really nice. So we call it being gumbled at HTB. I was, I was truly gumbled. Um, so I rang the chaplain, and he was very sweet. He said, look, I'll look after you. You'll be safe. You know, nothing will happen in the chapel. You'll be fine. So on December the 14th, 1994, I took a team of seven people down to Exeter Prison. And this man, Michael, was sharing a cell with his dad. Together, they'd been caught importing four and a half tons of cannabis worth 11 and a half million pounds. At the time, it was the biggest drug haul in UK history. And we spent the afternoon just telling some stories, how the Holy Spirit was touching people's lives everywhere. And then we invited the Holy Spirit to come into the chapel. And Michael's dad, who quite a small man, but tough. I mean, he was in the mafia. He was an international drug smuggler, as was Michael. Um, he fell to the floor and for 20 minutes rolled in what I call that gut-wrenching uh, laughter. And we gathered around him. And laughter in a prison is not normal. They're not places of joy. Um, but laughter is very infectious. So eventually we were all laughing with him, not at him. And eventually Michael helped his dad off the floor, gave him a hug and a smacker on the lips and said, Dad, in all my 34 years, I've never seen you laugh like that. So they went on and they did the Alpha course in the January of 95. But because they were big-time criminals, they then got shipped out to another prison because you don't want to build up all your friends in one place. Uh, and that's why they have to be moved on. And one of the roles of a chaplaincy team is to go around the new inmates who've just arrived and find out how they are, tell them about the Sunday services, and so um, Michael says to the chaplain, oh, we're Christians. And so the chaplain said, wonderful. And then Michael says to the chaplain, do you run Alpha in this prison? And the chaplain goes, well, what's Alpha? And Michael says, oh, if you ring Emmy at HTB, she'll bring a team down. <laughs> that was his experience. So I get this cold call from the chaplain saying, you don't know me, but I think you know two of my inmates and mentioned father and son. And I went, yes. And then he said, well, would you come down and tell us about the Alpha course? Now, I was expect not expecting this. I thought my trip to Exeter Prison was a wonderful experience never to be repeated. But down I went, and Michael, because he's a big-time tough criminal, he had dragged people along from the wings, and he said, you're coming to chapel. <laughs> so chapel was quite full. And uh, at the end of the session, the chaplain said, um, I've read that there's this... Uh, uh, talk uh, or talks in the middle of the course uh, about the Holy Spirit. Um, I have no idea how we would do that in a prison. Would you come back and, and, and do that? So I'd never done that before either, but, but because I had already done the Alpha course, at least I had a bit of experience. So down we went. And again, we saw the Holy Spirit touching these men's lives in the most profound way. They were there for... Um, 18 months, so every time we went down, because they usually do Alpha, in, in, uh, even in the prisons, three times a year, the Alpha course got bigger and bigger and bigger. And the biggest Alpha appetizer we did, we had 99 men in the chapel, which was amazing. Um, and then they got transferred, transferred to Maidstone Prison. And within 24 hours, hello, I'm the chaplain of Maidstone Prison. <laughs> I think you know two of my inmates. They've told me you will come down and tell us about the Alpha course. 
So literally, I was running just to keep up with these two prisoners, and God used two big-time serving prisoners to spread the Alpha course around each prison they went to. So um, Michael started to travel when he got out of prison. He joined our church, by the way. He's a rascal. But the next picture is um, of him and me in uh, Uganda. Um, this was long before I was ordained. We were out there doing uh, an Alpha conference. Um, he came into the prison with us. Uh, he's got such a sense of humor, Michael. He's absolutely terrific. He used to have a flower stall in Clapham. And um, whenever I dropped by to see him, um, he would give me a bunch of flowers. That's partly why I dropped by to see him. But um, uh, if a stranger came into, into the shop, he'd say, let me introduce Emmy. And then he'd say, Emmy loves Jesus. And I'd go, yes, I do. Um, do you know Jesus? Uh, no, no, I don't. So, you know, he just has that ability. And by the way, Tim, if you ever invite him here, don't give him the microphone. You'll never get him off the stage. <laughs> you know, he just loves telling people how Jesus has transformed his life. So uh, he is uh, a dear friend, and God is using him mightily. The next picture is of a man called Shane Taylor. Now, Shane was once on the list of the most, six most violent prisoners in the entire UK prison system. He tried to stab and kill two prison officers whilst he was in prison, which obviously is a complete no-no. And... Um, <laughs> understatement. Um, he spent two years in solitary confinement. Um, there was a hatch that was locked, and if they were to give him food or anything, they had to unlock it and put the food through and lock the hatch again. And if ever he came out of uh, his cell for whatever reason, it required seven armed guards in full riot gear to guard him and to protect themselves from him. And eventually he left the um, uh, solitary confinement and he was put in a, on a wing and one day he was on his way what he thought was to the education department but in a prison if you're not on that list when you get to that uh, department you can't, you can't go in because you have to go where you're supposed to be going so the officer said well why don't you go over there in over there and in over there was the chapel and they were running the alpha course so Shane comes in, sits down and goes oh no this is a course about God, what would God want with a scumbag like me? He was about to get up and leave in the break, and they said, we're about to serve chocolate biscuits. So he said, I'm staying. <laughs> so he stayed purely because of the chocolate biscuits. Amazing what will draw people to Jesus. And on the Holy Spirit day, um, he was prayed for and didn't experience anything. Went back to the wing and... Um, God spoke to the chaplain and said, I want you to go and unlock Shane and bring him back to the chapel and pray for him again. And the chaplain said, God, this is Shane Taylor. Do you really want me to do this? You know, he had such a reputation. And uh, God said, yes. So he went, unlocked Shane, brought him back to cha the chaplaincy. And um, on this occasion, as he laid hands on Shane, Shane talks about this bubbling feeling that started in his tummy and came up and up and up. And then as, as it were, the Holy Spirit just tumbled out, he, he burst into tears. Now, Shane did not cry. He was a big, tough man. But uh, on this occasion, he sobbed like a baby for 20 minutes. And as the chaplain was about to hand 
at, take him back to the, his cell. He handed him a Bible and he said, you're going to need this now, Shane. And so Shane was taken back. Now, normally, uh, when he got to the wings, the officers would be a bit like, oh gosh, Shane's coming, be careful. But Shane, with his Bible, went up to the first officer and he went, Jesus is real! Jesus is real! Jesus is... And, and the officers were like, what's happened to you? But do you remember Saul on the road to Damascus? When he was filled with the Spirit, when he stood up again, he was transformed. Well, this is what happened to Shane. And within weeks, he became the chapel orderly. Um, he, he was totally transformed from this mean man who hated everybody, including himself, to this man who loved Jesus and started to love other people all around him. And eventually he was uh, allowed out of prison. He met and married this sweet girl called Samantha, who's about this tall. And they've had five children, Angel, Grace, Jacob, Isaac, and Elijah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Anyway, I said to Shane, um, you're going to need a passport one day. I actually took him into prison to give his first ever testimony in front of other people. And all the men came running forward at the end of that Holy Spirit afternoon to give their lives to Christ. But I said, you're going to need a passport. He said, how do you get a passport? I said, well, you know, you need to... Anyway, I explained how. Then I got an email in 2018 from him saying, I've been invited to go and do a TEDx talk in Luzeria Maximum Security Prison in Kampala. I have no idea how I can get there. I need someone to take me. So because I'm a woman, uh, I didn't think I would ever be the one who would be invited. But... Paul Cowley, who by now was on our staff team, his diary was a bit full, as was one of the other uh, male on our team. So Paul said to me, Em, you take Shane. So this next picture is him having just been delivered at Heathrow Airport. Um, he had to be brought to the airport. He didn't know how to get off the tube at the right station. <laughs> um, and the first thing that happened was we... we uh, Checked in, and he got upgraded. And I got terribly excited on his behalf. He didn't know what being upgraded meant. But he sat in Economy Plus, and um, we got to Uganda. And he couldn't believe the poverty as we drove from, Kampala, uh, from the airport to, into Kampala. He said, look, they're not wearing shoes. Look, the, the houses are just tin shacks. He just he couldn't believe it. And on the first um, Sunday we were there, we went into the uh, lifer's wing on the prison, and he gave his testimony, and he came out and he sobbed. He said, it's such a privilege to speak to men, because I might have had a life sentence with what I did. And then on the day we did the TEDx talk, it was a surreal experience. Do you remember the film, um, The Shawshank Redemption? Do you remember the opera singers who sing in that, that beautiful aria? Yes, I haven't got the music here, but we had two opera singers with us, sisters, who actually sang that aria in front of two and a half thousand prisoners, and there were about a thousand visitors as well, including the Lord Chief Justice of Uganda. And Shane was the third person to give his testimony. He did a 15-minute TEDx talk. It was brilliant. He talked about this experience of, of, of experiencing the love of Jesus and how the love of Christ had transformed him. And then uh, the coffee break took place, and as many prisoners as could just wanted to crowd around him. And they pointed to him, they said, if God can change a man like you, maybe God can change me as well. 
So uh, he also goes into prisons up in the northeast. Um, he loves Jesus. His life is not easy. You know, his criminal friends don't like him. But he has been reconciled to one of those uh, prison officers who he tried to stab to death, um, which is remarkable in itself because that prison officer has forgiven him. Um, and as I said, he struggles. But he's been out of prison now for about probably 12 years, whereas before he was in and out, in and out, in and out, this horrible cycle of recidivism that so many go through. The next picture... Um, is of a guy called Eddie. This is Eddie when he was homeless, uh, skin darkened, uh, grubby, um, broken. He was so sick, he had hep C, he, was, he had liver failure. He was dying on the, as he lived on the streets. And he came to an Alpha course, but he was so drunk. And actually sometimes if a guest is, is very, very drunk, it's just unhelpful for the other guests to, you know, for them to stay. So we had to sadly ask him not, not to stay. Then he tried a second time, again, very, very drunk. But on the third occasion, he came uh, on an Alpha course, and he was sober. And on the Alpha Holy Spirit Day, he was prayed for. He received the love of Christ, gave his heart to Jesus, and immediately his life turned around. And this next photo was taken in my church in London. Uh, yes, I do wear robes. Um, and uh, actually, it's so nice not to be wearing robes today. Thank you very much, Tim. Didn't have, didn't have to bring my dog collar with me. Um, uh, but here he is holding the cross as we processed up the aisle with Paul Carley on the other side and me. And he's one of the greatest evangelists now. He, he loves Jesus. He works in a homeless shelter in London. He'll sit with you and tell you all about Jesus. And a few years ago... He went out to um, Los Angeles, to Skid Row, where a lot of homeless people live. And he was on an Alpha team introducing the Alpha course to the homeless on Skid Row. And I thought to myself, how remarkable from that man who so nearly died. You know, he was brought up in a children's home, in and out of prison as a young man, became an alcoholic, a drug addict, and um, sort of mid-early 30s, literally was, was dying. But look at him now, he's well. And then a few years ago, I took him to Marburg, Germany on a mission trip uh, that I'd been invited to speak on. And as soon as we arrived in Marburg, the first thing we were, do, were taken to by the pastor was to a drug den where all these heroin addicts lived. And we both uh, talked to these men in the drug den and he gave his testimony and it was just so, so powerful. Uh, but his love for Jesus is just second to none. The next picture is of um, a brothel in Mumbai. I got involved in this ministry um, partly because these people are imprisoned, so they're still prisoners, but they're not in Her Majesty's prisons. Actually, I must tell you a funny story. Um, we had a visit from the now King Charles, but he was Prince Charles at that point, who came to our church and he wanted to meet um, various people. And Michael Emmett, that first picture I showed you, um, he's so cheeky. But he said to Prince Charles, he said um, when he met him, uh, Oi, he said, um, tell your mum that the beds in, the, in her prisons aren't very comfortable. Could she do something about it? <laughs> and I thought only Michael Emmett could talk to Prince Charles, telling him his mum, the Queen, to, you know upgrade the beds in Her Majesty's prisons. 
Um, actually, Prince Charles is okay. King Charles, he, he's good. Um, so, prison people who are in prison have really captured my heart. But uh, in our church in central London, that rather smart church, you saw me dressed in my robes, I'm always aware, because it's on, on the high street, that we have visitors who pop in, because there's lots of sort of uh, hotel accommodation. And one morning, there was uh, a gentleman who walked in, and I thought, I don't know you, never seen you before, you must be a visitor. So I went up to him, I introduced myself, and within 10 minutes, he told me his story. He was working in the first World Trade Building in New York when the plane hit. He was on the 82nd floor. He had written an email 20 minutes before the plane hit to his Christian friends saying, I'm on this corporate ladder to success. Um, I've got a beautiful wife. She's pregnant with our first child. But I don't believe as a Christian I am giving back to God or doing anything to serve God. Would you pray for me? The plane hits, and he then, I, somehow he manages to walk all the way down but when he gets to the ground floor, the building collapses. And he and 20 other people were buried under rubble and could not move. Alive, but buried. And they were there for six hours. And this uh, man, Sujo, just told these other people about Jesus and how Jesus had changed his life growing up uh, as he was in, in India. And... After six hours, an FBI agent managed to crawl into this rubble, and Sujo was the first person to be pulled out by the FBI agent and rescued. And at that point, the FBI agent went back in to rescue the next person. And at that point, the rubble, or rather more of the building collapsed. The 20 men and that FBI agent were all buried and killed. Sujo was the only one in that group who survived. And he came out, and he was staggering down the streets, covered, as you can imagine, in dust and, and debris. And the Second World Trade Building, as you know, had already collapsed. And he thought, my wife is dead, because that's where she worked. And then his phone went off. And he put, put, brought it out of his pocket, and it was his wife's name. And he thought, someone's found her phone and is ringing me. But he answered it, and it was his wife. She was... 15 seconds late getting to the lift to go up to her floor when the plane hit and obviously they, no one was allowed to. So her, her life was res rescued. Evidently, that email went viral in the States because of, of the significance of Sujo's life being spared. And for a while, he, he did a lot of speaking all around America. He gave his testimony to people. But still, he felt he wasn't really doing what God had asked him to do. And then he was taken back to um, Delhi in India and shown the brothels. And his heart was just so touched with this terrible, um, the terrible sights he saw. So he started this ministry. I, I love the title, You Can Free Us. And um, long short it is, I'm now a trustee, just as a result of meeting this man coming into church, which was incredible. And a few years ago, I went out to Mumbai, and we went into the brothel. Pretty scary, actually, because, um, you know, the pimps were on each floor, but Sujo has a way to sort of get past them, and we were taking Christmas gifts, which is always good when you're taking gifts. But this is a picture of a girl just showing you um, 
there's a very low ceiling because the children are put in the very small space between that ceiling and, and, and the roof, as it were. Uh, and they, you have to go up these steep stairs. Where, that's where the children are hidden to have sex. And all those rooms have padlocks. So uh, the women are literally padlocked into their rooms. And to rescue girls from these areas is particularly um, dangerous because, obviously, if they are rescued, it means you lose money because um, each one, you can earn a lot of money through them. Um, but they are being rescued, and I went to the safe house where these girls are now living, and they have this lovely workspace where they're learning crafts and where they're being taught um, uh, all the Christian values. And an American pastor gave $37,000 whilst we were there to take these women on a retreat up in the hills. It was a five-star hotel. And um, the next picture is these girls dressed. Uh, I wish, you know, if you have a live photo, you can see them jumping. Well, this is them jumping for joy. And when we first arrived, they all came on a big bus. Um, I was already there. But I was in the, the ladies, and they had never seen running water, because in the brothels, they just have a big vat that is cold, and that's, you know, they use that vat just for drinking water, washing, everything. But in the ladies' loo, they had those taps that you have a sensor, and the water comes out. And they were playing and playing and playing with the sensor. They could not believe that the water could come out just by waving your hand up and down in front of it. And it was so moving because we spent the whole day with them and we gave them these beautiful saris because um, it was Christmas time um, as gifts and they put them on and wore them. Um, and they're testimonies of what God has done to bring about transformation in their lives is just beautiful. You know, they eventually they get jobs. Um, some go into the catering industry, some go into the medical profession, nursing and everything. But the stories I heard, I could not believe. There was what we, we in, in our group, uh, on one of the days we were there, because we prayed for every single girl, we gave them prophetic words. But there was one occasion we just felt we should wash their feet as the disciples, um, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And one girl said, please don't touch me under my feet. And we were told afterwards that when she was in captivity, she used to be hung from a ceiling fan and beaten on her feet, hung upside down. So the reason she didn't want the underneath of her feet touch was because it would bring back those memories. Now, how can any human being do that to another? How can they do it? But this is happening probably here in Melbourne as well. I'm sure there's human trafficking. Um, we've been working uh, on the border between Ukraine and Poland because an awful lot of trafficking is taking place as these people have been escaping the war. And what we're trying to do is help these people find freedom and escape human slavery and suffering. So I, I look at that picture and I just, I, I love color. Everyone, anyone who knows me knows I love color. Um, but for me, that picture of them just jumping for joy in the greenery, you know, the previous pictures, some of those people are kept locked up in those rooms most of their um, young adult life. They don't see the light of day. But look at them now. So there's a lot of work to be done. I am so grateful to God that he's taken me on this, this path. I mean, my 
my, one of my life verses is Proverbs 16, verse 9, that says, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord orders his steps. So my life is going to be my nursing career, meet my husband, get married, get pregnant with my first child, leave my nursing career, have at least six kids. Liza will know, I, and Joel, that I love kids. Um, and that was going to be my life. But as God would choose, it hasn't happened. I feel a bit like Jackie Pullinger, who works in Hong Kong with all the heroin addicts there. People said to her, uh, how sad, Jackie, you never had children. And she goes, children? I've got more spiritual children than any of you put together. And it's true. I mean, Michael Emmett would say, Em, if you were married, we'd all be jealous of your husband, which also makes me laugh as well. But um, I am so thrilled that God has allowed me to just bring a bit of his love, a bit of his freedom, a bit of his um, yeah, love and freedom to people who have never known God's love. And I know that um, over the years, the experiences I've had could only have taken place because I was filled with the transformational power of God's Holy Spirit. Up until that point in uh, 1982, when I first experienced the Holy Spirit, it was as if I was walking with uh, horses wear blinkers uh, sometimes, that I was wearing blinkers, and all I could think about was my life, where I was going, and what I was doing. And I didn't see the world around me. But as soon as I was filled with God's love, I started to see everywhere around me need and poverty and brokenness and lives that were just, just so far away from Jesus. And as a result, um, I can genuinely say I've had the best life possible. And I say to people, even on the Alpha team, the prison ministry Fast. I'm so sorry, guys. I know you've been praying for your youth, but prison ministry is much better than youth even because <laughs> you do prison ministry in the young offenders prisons as well. But, you know, most people say, why do you focus on prisoners? And I say, well, who here has been a victim of crime? Put up your hand if you've been a victim of crime. Let's just have a look. Nice and high. Look, a lot of hands are going up. Well, I don't want there to be more crime. I want prisoners to come out with a new focus, loving Jesus, wanting to be, live a holy life rather than planning their next crime. And I want to finish with uh, words here from uh, St. Paul, who wrote to the Roman church with these words. He said this, To all present, as if he's speaking to, to you, who are loved by God. There's no doubt that the most important thing about our lives is not our achievements or our failings. It's not about our strengths or our weaknesses, but that we are loved by God. Descartes, the well-known philosopher, famously said this, I think, therefore, I am. But to be a Christian is to be one who knows, I am loved, therefore I am. And to know this love as it was for Michael, for Shane, for Eddie, is totally liberating and can bring each of us unshakable security. Many of us are looking for our identity in lives, but it's not found primarily in what 
is inside us, nor in, indeed in who we interact around us, but in the one who is above us. Whether we succeed, whether we fail, whether people reject us or accept us, we are loved by God. And this journey of the Christian life is one in which our identity becomes more and more defined by this love. So this Easter, may we all reflect on this wonderful truth from that verse in 1 John 4. We know that we live in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. And daily we can ask, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. For people I'm meeting today that I, I want to reflect your love, fill me with your spirit. And he'll fill us and he'll impart his love and the world will be changed. In Jesus' name, amen.